A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Harriet Minter and this is the Badass Women's Hour. This week I ask, are we all secret misogynists? I talked to Pragya Agrawal about why women of colour have been left out of the motherhood conversation. And one listener asks, how do we know we've got old? Now, you might have seen in the news this week, particularly if you are into books and you follow what is known as book Twitter, the publishing world, that the author Jeanette Winston had a bit of a strop about some of the quotes used on the cover of her new book. So when you write a book, you have to go and ask people to say nice things about it, and those nice things are printed on the cover to encourage other people to buy it. It's a really, quite frankly, horrible part of the book process. I did not enjoy it at all, but you have to do it. And so if you are a relatively successful author, as Jeanette Winston is, very successful in fact, you'll probably find that your editors will go and do it for you. And so they'll come to you with lots of nice quotes and those quotes go on the book. And what happened was that, I'm guessing, I don't know, Jeanette Winston's editors went out, got some nice quotes, put them on the book. And for reasons that are completely unclear, Jeanette Winston either didn't look at them before it got published or decided that she didn't like them after it had been published. But she described these quotes as cosy domestic fiction and said it made her the worst type of women's fiction. She then followed this up by putting a picture on social media of her burning the books. There's obviously a lot of history around burning books. It's obviously very related to Nazism and that kind of smothering, I guess, of ideas and thought. But what people got really upset about was this kind of critique of women's fiction, So she'd use the term women's fiction and she spelled it W-I-M-M-I-N-S, women's women's fiction, as a pejorative, as something to be kind of ashamed of and to not want to be associated with. And lots of people on Twitter pointed out how rude that was, how in fact it's actually women's fiction that in terms of money really keeps the fiction market going. You know, the reason that publishers can afford to publish kind of more high literary books is because women's fiction is such good sellers. A lot of people also just saying that actually a lot of women's fiction is really brilliant. It's really great stories. It's well written. A lot of it is funny, charming, moving. And to dismiss it in such a casual way smacks of internalized misogyny. And now I have to own here that when I first saw Jeanette Whitson burning these books, I was shocked at the burning of the books. But I wasn't shocked at her being dismayed to have been included in women's fiction. I actually thought that was if not okay, at least kind of normal, something that a lot of authors felt that actually it was quite frustrating that we had to describe books written by women as cosy domestic novels. 
that actually maybe she had a point that it that she was unhappy with that description. And it was only when I was reading Twitter later that I thought, oh gosh, I have sat in my own internalized misogyny where I've said it's okay to be upset by somebody saying that something that in some way relates to women is lesser than. And we see this all the time. We see it when we talk about women's fashion, which is seen as kind of fluffy and not serious and a bit airheaded. But when we talk about men's fashion, we're talking about suits and boots and stuff that requires serious old school skills. If you've ever been into a men's tailor, you know, it's a very different vibe from when you go into a normal shop. We see it when we talk about women's health, which is a whole separate thing. We don't really ever talk about men's health. That's another issue. But when we talk about women's health, we're often talking about essentially gynecological problems and women being a bit wimpy about pain, which is not true, as we know. And so while it seems silly to be upset about an author behaving like a bit of a brat around some quotes on the cover of her book, what's actually within it is this deeply internalized misogyny that if we don't question and we don't call out, infiltrates into other much bigger and more important parts of our lives and ensures that as women, we get taken less seriously everywhere. What we should in fact be doing is saying, somebody has likened me to women's fiction and I am not good enough. I am not worthy of that. I would argue, quite frankly, that Richard Osman's best-selling The Thursday Murder Club is cosy domestic thriller. You know, it's not, I mean, okay, yes, there's murder, but it's, it's pretty cosy. And nobody is complaining about that. Nobody is calling that, quotes, women's fiction. Although, again, I would argue that 99% of people who have bought it are, in fact, women. We need to get past this idea that just because a woman produces something, it is in some way inferior, or that because something is produced for women, it is in some way inferior. We should know that the quality of the stuff that comes to us is great, and we should be proud of that. And we have to challenge that internalized misogyny in ourselves and in others when we see it. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. One woman challenging not just internalized, but externalized misogyny and racism is Pragya Agrawal. Her books look at the experiences of women of color within our society today. And she's taken on the biggest topic for women, I think, that's out there, which is, of course, motherhood. She talks to me about exactly why we have made motherhood so white and whether or not we should be putting children front and centre of women's lives. Hello, Harriet, how are you? Good, thank you. So tell me a little bit about the book and how you came to write it. So yes, as you mentioned, it's the, the title is M in brackets, M otherhood or motherhood mm-hmm. on the choices of being a woman. So it is about motherhood, but it is more about how women's bodies through history have been put on a pedestal but also stigmatized how womenhood in, in, it has been tied so intrinsically with our ability to reproduce and to give birth and that our reproductive functions or the ability to give birth has been so strongly associated with our value in society. But at the same time, the paradox is that motherhood is not valued as much. But So it's about choices and about how women are not trusted to talk about their bodies or make choices for our own bodies. Do you think that women are still not trusted to make choices for their own bodies? I, I think so. I think we see that so, many, so much uh, that still if women choose to not have children, they have to justify and explain their choices. People are questioned, especially women. Men are not. And we hear these stories all the time. Even today on my Twitter, women were discussing this about how 
they are uh, stigmatized for it, they are othered about it, and and even in medical domain or healthcare domain, women are not trusted about the pain they're experiencing or uh, the kind of, yeah, the, the, how ill they're fe- feeling, how sick they're feeling, what they need for their bodies, how they want to be, what life decisions they want to make. Constantly, our choices are being judged and by according to a societal norm of what society expects from us. Can you tell me a bit about your own experiences? You have children, that's right, Snet. Yes, yes, and I do. Did you feel, as kind of you were entering that motherhood journey, did you feel that there was a level of expectation around that? So yeah, I mean, the book is underpinned by my journey, which is mm-hmm. which is quite varied uh, from from puberty to about where which is considered kind of the threshold of when you become a woman and you suddenly your value in society changes or your perceptions and expectations changes and I write about how you become invisible and visible at the same time yeah. and how you're supposed to shrink so that you not draw attention to yourself and how periods are stigmatized and menstruation stigmatized still uh, um, in in different parts of the world. Um, and I, starting from that, I go through when I had my first child very young and it was a very difficult childbirth, but I was deeply rooted in this kind of patriarchal society where the expectation is to have a son and daughters are not valued or women are still the second sex, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And, and and it was a really, really life-threatening where I almost died and came back to life and what mm-hmm. it meant for me. And I, I kind of go through that journey, through my infertility journey, again, a secondary infertility but I, I try and underpin that with scientific data and stats about how, uh, and historical research about how um, infertility is still stigmatized, how um, women's uh, bodies are seen differently when they're pregnant, uh, there are certain expectations and norms. But also we can't talk about it. The otherhood in the title also stands for how we have to draw an intersectional aspect or discussion or discourse around this because often these are not intersectional, these discussions, and we homogenize these experiences. So people who are on the fringes, like if, if you're disabled or if you're a woman of color or if you're mm-hmm. queer, or you, you have very different experiences of mothering, but also the choices that are on offer to you. So I wanted to draw out some of these intersectional aspects through my book, but also related to my own journey of the different choices I had on offer and the different choices I've made throughout my life related to pertaining to that. I want to talk to you about lots of that stuff, but I, yes. first of all, I want to start because there's so much there to unpick. Mm-hmm. I think, um, <laughs> but I want to start with you know you talked about this expectation of having mm-hmm. a son, and I mm-hmm. certainly know that you know all my girlfriends when they went through having children, they all had expectations around the gender of their child, even if they tried not to, even if they were like, oh, mm-hmm. anything, so long as it's healthy, it's fine. There was still sort of an expectation from them, from their partner, from their families. And it was, you know, different for different people. But we do put a lot of kind of expectations on an unborn child based on its gender. Why do we do that? Because there are certain stereotypes associated with gender. Um, And and I've written in other books, in Sue especially, about how parents even have different expectations from girls and boys. And I think no matter how much we think that we are gender equal, we are not. We have these implicit biases through our own experiences, through our own memories and through what we see around us. And so people think of a anticipate a certain kind of life if you have a boy or a girl. And that is why sometimes when we think about these feminine or masculine behaviors, when children grow up, actually this is through gender socialization because 
boys and girls are often, research shows that raised in different ways as well because we impose these expectations and aspirations on them. But I, I had my first child in India where still there is this, I mean, I talk about the Vedas and I talk about um, all the rituals around it. There are these expectations that the firstborn has to be a son because of a number of reasons, because they carry the family line and all those kind of things, which means that even when I was dying and coming back from life, there was this still expectation, oh, never mind, the next one will be a boy. And that really, um, hmm. that really highlighted for me about how um, this child who uh, has come up from so, such difficulty um, mm. is still not valued. And so this, this notion of value that we associate with different things is based in societal norms. So, yes, we all have different expectations about our lives, but that doesn't mean that we should stigmatize the, the one that is not our choice, you know? Yeah. And how did you feel after having that level of traumatic birth Mm-hmm. How did how did you feel about yourself and your body after that experience? I mean, I was so young, and you mm. just kind of internalize so many of these things and so many yeah. beliefs, and and you don't even know what's going on. And I know that I went through a severe case of postnatal depression, and mm. I had been given I was all ill for almost two months. I had been given five units of blood because I'd lost a lot of blood and and at that stage i didn't even realize that it was contaminated blood so i had been given um hepatitis c with the blood um as well and so i was very ill for two months but i was also trying to bond with my child while my body was feeling so broken and and all the trauma for the last four months and i'd been bedridden um and and so nobody talks to you about how you are expected to feel it's always this whenever i think that's also the notion of how mothering is not valued because there's yeah. so much focus on the child which is justifiably so but the person who has actually given birth and it still happens the doctors don't really ask them how are you how are you feeling what do you need uh, what are your needs during this time you know and so you sacrifice yourself thinking this, this, I'm my child has to be the focus. I do not can't think about myself because then I'm not a good mother or I'm not a perfect mother because I'm thinking about myself mm. and my needs at that time. So yes, I I think we don't talk about mental health and at that stage at least we didn't talk about mental health at all about my mental health about how I was suffering what I had gone through and that trauma. I think I realized years later that the trauma lives in ourselves in our bodies and we carry this trauma through. And we have PTSD through these traumatic experiences as well. So, yes, I think we need to have, I think it's great we're having more wider conversations around PTSD and PND and all those yeah. kind of things. And we need more focus on the mother as well, as well as the child, I think. And then with your second child, you went through a period of infertility before. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. quite often when we talk about infertility, we sort of assume that um, it only happens to women that have no children. Right? That yeah. it's, you know, you're either fertile or infertile and there's no in-between land. Mm. What was your experience? Yeah, so, I mean, I I just assume that it will happen again yeah. like it did in the first time around because yeah. I and it was a surprise, the first pregnancy. So it wasn't planned. So I just thought mm-hmm. that will happen again. And and there was also this ambivalence around whether I really wanted more children or not, yeah. um, because I was with my now partner husband. And mm-hmm. so I was thinking, I don't know, because last time it was so traumatic, and I don't know whether I want more children or not. 
But then you all I also write about how this kind of panic that's created because of the fertility myths and your age and you think, oh, I'm nearing 35. I don't know whether I'll be able I need to make this decision really quickly. So the panic is there because what if I regret it later? Mm-hmm. Um, and then so we just didn't think about it. Um, and then we realized that actually it's not happening. So we need yeah. to go through IVF treatment. And I think during that process also, there's so much ignorance around this. We've not given inf- direct information from specialists. And NHS treats secondary infertility as something that is not free on the NHS. And it's also a postcode lot- lottery, as we know. Um, so, so of course, uh, even my, my husband didn't have children. I had one, so we didn't get any um, NHS treatments. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's all very, yeah, I mean, there are different aspects to it. It was it was lonely. It was isolating. I didn't see any brown women talking about the infertility stories. I didn't, even when we went on forums, there wasn't that much discussion around secondary infertility. It's basically, so you always also carry this kind of guilt to whether I can talk about it because I already have a child. And mm-hmm. I talk about an experience where in, to my boss, I said, we're trying five-year treatment. And she said, why would you want another one and go through all this and you already have a child? So you feel almost kind of guilt and pressure and all those kind of things that I can't. So it was a very lonely experience. And you feel guilt and pressure because also you think, you internalize these beliefs that it should happen. As a woman, this should happen to me naturally. Why isn't it happening? Something's broken inside me. And there are all these languages around incompetent cervix and inhospitable yeah. uterus and all these kind of which makes you feel so ashamed about your body, like your body's broken. And so I think it was a very, um, yeah, looking back, it was a very difficult and lonely experience. Yeah. I mean, that piece about language, we actually had um, yeah. Michelle Kennedy from an app called Peanut, which connects mothers yeah. on. And she's been doing a campaign around the language because she said yeah. Yeah, the language that we use to talk to women at a really psychologically traumatic mm-hmm. point in their mm-hmm. lives is so cold and shaming mm-hmm. that it's astonishing it's lasted this long. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds salads generally for most people are the easy button right for me that wasn't an option i never really was a salad guy that's just not who i am but noom worked for me get your personalized plan today at noom.com real noom user compensated to provide their story in four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I wanted to uh, kind of pick up on the point you made there about 
um, not seeing any other brown women going through mm-hmm. infertility treatment. And I certainly can kind of recognize that because when I think about all the stories I see around infertility and IVF and surrogacy, mm-hmm. it is all white middle-class women mm-hmm. talking about yeah. their stories. How did you, how did that make you feel in that point of your journey? Um, as I said, uh, it is a lonely experience yeah. anyway, I think for everybody, but yeah. I think it was more lonely because I think certain cultures, we don't talk about infertility that much or fertility treatments. Um, there's also uh, this kind of myth or misconception that brown and black women are more hyperfertile and they can have children very easily, which means that medical mm-hmm diagnosis and treatment can be biased as well and then when you don't see yourself represented you feel like maybe I'm the only one you know Um, how do I talk about it to anybody who do I share it with who do I ask for advice about it Um, yes it is very homogenized this these the rep stories that we hear Um, the whole even the motherhood narrative is very white middle class and I think one of the aims for writing this book was to bring out that intersectional perspective so yes I think we need to address some of these cultural, environmental, social aspects of infertility about um, what is happening. And, and if I looked at some of the data le- recently, and even a couple of years ago, the, the data wasn't disaggregated. There wasn't enough data to show how many black or brown women had gone through IVF treatments and which kind, what kind of treatments, how many were successful or not. And I think the less we share stories, the more stigma we feel and shame we feel around it. Do you think black and Asian women are less likely to be able to access IVF treatment? I mean, there are, again, it, it depends on class. It depends mm. on a number of factors. It depends on socioeconomic strata, suddenly, yeah. certainly. So because, of course, I talk about my privilege in the book, even though I felt like, obviously, I faced prejudice and bias as a brown woman and loneliness, but also we had resources, um, all our savings, we invested in it to undergo the, pay for the fertility treatments. We could, we had a car, we could drive to clinics which were further away. Um, We could look up information online, uh, even though it wasn't stories that I could relate to. Um, We could take some time, time off work to go to these treatments and hospital appointments. And many people wouldn't be able to do that. And if we look across um, not just UK, but across the US, where um, pe- women are on Medicaid who have to um, who don't have free health treatment. There are more w- Indigenous women or women of color and women of working class or social lower socioeconomic class strata who are um, reliant on that. Which means that they don't have they don't have as much access to contraception, fertility treatments, even abortion, and all those all all the three things that enable women to have choices in life so yes women's choices are constrained by how what your position in society is really certainly um we also know things like we know that black women are five times more likely to die Mm -hmm. in childbirth we know Mm -hmm. that um asian women might find it harder to access medical treatment Mm -hmm. how do we go about breaking down some of that bias and um inequality that exists in the medical system? I think if we talk, look at the medical textbooks, some of them, like the first chapter of the book, I talk about the language that's there. It's very gendered, but it's also very racialized. And these racial beliefs 
persist in a scientific theories and a scientific language about how um, certain uh, women of color maybe have thicker skin or they fa- feel pain differently. And so we need to look at how biology is taught, how sex uh, education is taught, what language is being used. Uh, we need to think about how people, medical professionals are being trained. And we need to, they need to have training and consistent kind of reflection on what kind of biases they carry, um, because that really impacts how much, what kind of diagnosis and treatment and how fast this diagnosis can happen and what level of pain relief or what level of other kind of treatments are, are given. We know that in infertility treatments, black and brown women often do get delayed like interventions, medicalized interventions, because it's often believed that they are hyperfertile, as I said, and they they will have children more easily. And so they're overlooked within that as well, within the idea of infertility treatments as well. But yes, I mean, all these scientists, scientific science is not without bias and scientific language and scientific um, training and theories are not without bias. So we need to really do a kind of overall of, of and really close examination of some of our textbooks, but also the training that the medical professionals are getting. You talked about how the kind of the whole concept of motherhood is very mm-hmm. white. I really feel mm-hmm. like social media has exacerbated that even further. Mm-hmm. That um, you know we have become like the kind of there is a bit of a, a kind of cult of motherhood on social media. Mm-hmm. Um, as a brown woman, how do you feel about that depiction of motherhood? Uh, for a long time, I didn't really associate with any of the yeah. kind of motherhood discussion or discourse on social media, especially mm-hmm. Instagram was pretty bad about this, yeah. kind of promoting a certain kind of face of motherhood yeah. or a notion of motherhood. Um, this notion, this myth around perfect motherhood, these perfect images that are created also and the bodies that are that you see used to see on display which has changed a little bit in the recent past mm-hmm. especially with all discussion about race um they were perfect slender white middle class women that we are seeing that that means that anybody who is not part of the narrative suddenly feels of course certainly feels that they are not part or they're not they can't conform to this mm-hmm. and so they're othered so this this feeling of otherness is always there they don't have a say. They, their stories are not being heard. Their stories are not as easy to be published or, or get out in the in mainstream media. You don't see these stories on television or in films. So until and unless we really change the notion of what an idealized woman's body is, what an idealized form of motherhood is, and that there is no, again, we need to step away from that there is a way to do motherhood. There is a way to do mothering. We need to step away from that, and we need to step away from the societal norms of what and these misconceptions around perfect motherhood, because it creates guilt around around that as well. If I'm not able to do that, if I'm not feeding my children organic food and doing wholesome activities <laughs> with them for 24 hours, yeah. then I'm guilty. I'm not such a good mother. And I, we know that all women internalize this and carry this guilt to a certain extent, because we all want to be good mothers. We are told that women are naturally maternal. And we should be able to do that. And so, yes, I think we need to hear diverse stories and experiences and see diverse bodies. Yeah. And finally, I wanted to ask you about the concept of being child-free. So mm-hmm. I feel like the even the term child-free has really only yeah. come into our consciousness in the last few years. You know, Up until a point, women were always childless, and now mm-hmm. they are child-free. And... Um, 
And I was wondering whether that, because you talked at the beginning about a, a woman's autonomy over her body and being able to make her own decisions, but all the, all the pressure that society puts on her around what it means to be a woman. Where does the discussion of being child-free sit within the, within the black and brown communities in your research, do you think? Um, I think, first of all, um, I'm glad that we're having this discussion. Um, mm. But I do think that even terms like childless or child-free are still centering having children. Yeah, and I do great think point. We need, I think we need to move away from these terms because it's like still making having children the norm and that yeah. anybody who doesn't have children is has to be defined in a mm. certain way. So I think, first of all, we need to find a new language for this, where women are not defined by whether they have children or not, whether their status as a mother or not should not really impinge on their identity yeah. as a person or, at all. Um, but yes, I think in um, I, certainly from a brown community, I can say that there's a lot of stigma around childlessness and people, women who don't have children. And uh, it's certainly a choice that many more women are making, but it's still a choice that is very difficult and it's a struggle against um, their their community and their fa families because there is an expectation that, that you, as soon as you reach a certain age, you will have children, you will give grandchildren. And even in some of the Hindu, I can only speak from my community, even in certain Hindu rituals, or temples, women who do not have children cannot partake in some of these rituals mm. because being married, having children is still the norm or the respectable position for a woman to have in society. Um, and I don't think we hear many experiences of black and brown women who are openly saying, I don't, I'm actively choosing not to have children. But I really do think that even though we have been having this discussion, the fact that women still have to make this declaration is a little bit of a travesty or a shame that yeah. we're still caught up in this discourse where women have to say, oh, actually, I'm choosing not to have children because that shouldn't be an issue. That should be a personal lifestyle choice which nobody should have any say on. Oh, I agree. That is such a great point. <laughs> right um, finally, what would you like to change in the discussion? I mean, we've touched this, but I just <laughs> what would you like your book to change in the discussion around women and motherhood? I mean, I really, the, my hope is that actually, if when women want to make these choices, it, these choices should be that alone, and it shouldn't be because either they have they are choosing between their own self identity and children, or whether they between career and children. Because until then, it's still not really autonomous because it's still dependent on the societal inequalities because of societal inequalities that women are making these choices. Um, it's also, I think we need to have more say about our bodies. And I think it's a wider discussion about women's bodies, about what uh, women's bodies are, and um, moving away from an idealized notion of womanhood and these boxes and labels that are put on people and women being defined by their womb or their reproductive organs. We need to move away from that. And that's my hope for my children, for, for future generations as well, that they are not defined by their their not anatomy or by their body, uh, basically. Um, but yeah, I think an intersectional discussion and discourse is much needed about mother, womanhood, but also motherhood. I agree. And I'm so pleased that you've written the book on it so we can have that discussion. <laughs> Thank you so much. That was Pragya Agarwal and her new book, Motherhood, which is M brackets, motherhood, is out now.
So our listener question this week really made me laugh. I have felt this. Um, It's all about the aging process. And it goes like this. Have I got old? I see everyone running out of lockdown and straight into the pubs, but I just can't be bothered. I don't want to go on big nights out and suffer a hangover for three days. I never want to see a pair of heels again. I just want to move to the country and live like an old lady with dogs. What is wrong with me? Well, I mean, first of all, I would argue nothing. Who doesn't want to move to the country and live like an old lady with dogs? But secondly, I think this is a really interesting thing. We talked earlier in the show about internalized misogyny. This feels like internalized ageism to me. I don't know about you, but I have seen recently a lot of really amazing women in their 50s kind of coming out and talking about the joy of getting older and kind of the trials and tribulations. So we saw the Davina McCall documentary on menopause, but also the joys that come with it and the kind of power and excitement that comes with it. I think for me, this feels like the first time we've actually as women had this conversation where we've said getting older can be a good thing. We don't have to care about the stuff that we were supposed to care about when we're teenagers. And actually, when you look at it from an older point, you just don't. You don't care about it. You're not interested in it. It doesn't seem as big a deal as it did then. But also, nor are we being written off. We're not disappearing into obscurity, never to be heard of again. And I think in your letter, there is a sort of a need to balance those two things, right? I, for one, definitely am very wary of a hangover these days. I'll be honest about that. I can't deal with a hangover. It takes too long to recover from. I feel awful and it's really, really bad for my skin. And my skin is suffering enough as it is. However, I have to know where the line is between me not wanting a hangover and me feeling maybe a little bit depressed in myself, feeling a little bit insecure, and so putting up barriers to being with other people. And so I just want you to check in on that. Like how much of this is not wanting to do the things of your youth and how much of it is maybe perhaps a little bit of insecurity that is causing you to stay away from others. As long as it's not the second one, that is fine. If you are feeling a bit insecure as well, that's also fine. I think all of us post-lockdown don't really know who we are or what we're doing anymore. But I would just urge you to be a little bit aware of that and challenge it. You know, challenge yourself to go out and be with people, to go out and be in crowds, to go out and have fun with people like you did in the old days. Try and challenge a fear if you can. However, if it is actually that you've just got to a point in your life where you're like, those things are not interesting to me, then I think this is really exciting because it means you get to think about the things that could be interesting to you. This is the point where we get to have our full-on midlife crisis, take up the new hobbies, go buy a fast car, go grab, well, I was going to say go grab a, a younger lover, but you don't have to do that. But essentially, think of this as a time for a bit of self-reinvention. What could you do that maybe you haven't been doing before? Maybe you've put it off because you felt it wasn't you or it wasn't right or you should be thinking about something else. Now's the time to maybe do life a bit differently. Now, if that means moving to the country with loads of dogs, great, I support that. Although I would encourage you maybe to go and rent in the country for a little bit before you move yourself out there permanently. Just check you do really like it. And remember that a dog is for life and they do live quite a long time. So you want to be sure first. But also, just experiment with things. I think now is the time to sign up for the new courses, to go see those places that perhaps you have have had on your bucket list for a while, once you're allowed to travel again. You know, experiment with what your life could be in this next stage. There is a reason that we are supposed to keep changing as we grow older. And I really encourage, if you are looking for some kind of inspiration in here, read Sam Baker's book, The Shift where she talks about how actually the menopause really shifted her attitude to life and the way she lived it. It's 
really interesting and has lots of amazing role models in there. For now, I think getting older as a woman, this is the best time to be doing it. We have a level of autonomy and power and hopefully some money. We can think about what we want for our own lives. And maybe we could reinvent the midlife crisis so that it's no longer mm, a bit cheesy. Instead, perhaps it could be something that even from our youth, we're all aspiring to. That's all from me this week. I hope you've enjoyed the show. As ever, do come talk to me on social media. You can find me at Harriet Minter. I would love to hear from you. You've been listening to Badass Women's Hour. If you like the show, then help more people find us. You can tag us or talk to us on social media using at Badass Women's Hour. Or you can be really lovely and leave us a review and a rating. Five stars, please. It helps boost us up the podcast rankings and allows other people to find us. We'll be back next week with more badass guests and in-depth chat. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.